Good. Would like to ask for your kind attention. Would like to speak about the uh, topic of self and hope to unravel some of the complexities in there. The complexities begin with language um, and are further compounded by translations and uh, by uh, an amazing passion of human beings to invest in a fiction called self and defend that fiction against reality and uh, other people if they threaten myself and my willingness to suffer for this self, my willingness to feel the need to uphold the self, even though such a self brings me pain, brings me frustration, brings me um, embarrassment and fears. So the, the challenge seems to be to find out what the Buddha meant and then to find out what we mean when we say self and then to find out how what the Buddha has said has some bearing on what we mean by self. And then we probably need to go back to and see whether this is really what the Buddha intended to mean. And then we need to find out what he recommends we do, if it does actually pertain to self, as we understand it. I wish this was easier. Let us go to the Buddha. His context is one of a variety of contemporary teachers that teach all kinds of things. These people are called uh, Ramanas and they form a loose movement of religious seekers, generally united by their alienation from established Brahminical religion and they're the kind of they're the off-Broadway scene, yeah, of religion. Yeah. <laughs> um, the Buddha was probably perceived to be one of these uh, shramanas in his, by his contemporaries who were just looking at this from afar. He will have not been distinguishable, at least early on in his career, not from other religious seekers who were outside of the Vedic, Upanishadic, Brahminical system. Yeah? The Brahminical twist on the Vedic religion was the prevalent uh, f um, fashion of the day, which uh, it wasn't at its most alive. Uh, there is a much more aliveness in the Upanishadic tradition um, sometime before by the sounds of it and uh, sometimes after this particular period. So Brahminical religion is um, ritualized, it is a little stilted, it, um, it implies that the most important people in the religion are not just Brahmins, but Brahmin priests. And they are absolutely needed for the sacrifices 
to be performed correctly. So there's a little bit of conceit sneaking in there and insofar as the gods also are in need of the Brahminical priests because without the Brahminical priests the sacrifices would not be performed properly and the gods would miss out. Uh, who certainly doesn't miss out is the Brahminical priests themselves <laughs> because they would partake of the sacrifices. And these sacrifices are not, you know, like we know from good Hindus nowadays, uh, vegetarian folks. You know? Good Hindus have not been vegetarian folks by the time of the Buddha. In fact, they've, they've just been weaned off horse sacrifices, yeah? as we know. Uh, vegetarianism has come into the Vedic religion much later, much long after the Buddha. Yeah? So the Buddha's context was happily meat-eating and was happily animal-sacrificing. And uh, this is one of the things the Buddha consistently criticizes and he uh, encourages many a wealthy Brahman not to slaughter his cattle. Um, so in this context, one of the crucial teachings, there is a teaching called Atman. This Atman is, uh, depending on where you look in the long history of Vedic tradition, can be a little homunculus somewhere living in your heart to a uh, thousand years later being a big non-physical essence of your being that when truly understood is completely personal at the same time is identical with a cosmic consciousness called Brahman. So the personal and the cosmic becomes fused. That is the act of understanding where Atman and Brahman are understood to be coming together in realization. If, you're a, if you realize Kaivalya completeness, then you have understood that Atman and Brahman are not separated. So this is one of the contexts the Buddha is in, and he uses the terminology in those days, and he completely, uh, this is one of the few things he in a roundabout way denies, uh, and this is the, this, that such an Atman can be found within the five khandhas, within the five aspects of experience, in the form aspect, in the feeling tone aspect, in the perceptual aspect, in the mind as it is known uh, as will and emotion, uh, in the sankhara aspect, and that it can be found in the sense consciousness level. So the Buddha roundabout denies that such an Atman has a footing in our empirical uh, experience. His line of argument is reasonably simple. He says everything within those domains of experience you can find, you can identify, you can associate with, you can, um, attend, attend, uh, you can attend to, is basically changing. It's transient. Yeah? So because it is transient, it means it doesn't belong to you. And because it is transit, it means it's going to let you down. It's not able to provide you with complete content, with complete happiness. So out of the characteristic of impermanence follows, quite logically, that anything that you can experience that is changeable, any such thing is of no use as a foundation for an Atman, for a soul. 
Such a soul in Vedic days is understood to be the opposite of the three characteristics. Such a soul is to be nitya. This is not difficult to hear the nitya, which is the opposite of anicca, impermanent. Such a soul is to be permanent. Such a soul is to be sukha, the opposite of dukkha. Uh, in other words, such a soul is permanently and eternally happy and complete. And uh, such a soul is real, insofar as it does belong to you. It is precisely Atman, while the Buddha's teaching of all experience, not just the conditioned experience, but even the unconditioned, namely freedom, Nibbana, awakening, uh, also the unconditioned doesn't belong to you. It, even if you get there, even if you realize it, you cannot say, I am Nibbana, myself is Nibbana. You cannot identify even with the unconditioned, let alone with the conditioned. So in Buddha's understanding, his three characteristics, each one negate one of the qualities that the Vedic tradition ascribed to the soul, to the Atman. That's one of the few instances where he, in very bold ways, completely deviates from a teaching. In fact, he says exactly the opposite of what that teaching says. Now the problem is when we stop translating Atta, as this is called in Pali, Attang to be precise, or Atman, as this is called in Sanskrit, when we stop translating this with the term of soul and start to translate this with the term of self. Yeah? Because we get into a, a, a muddle there. About a hundred years ago, uh, people stopped translating Atman as soul and started translating with the rise of psychology, whether you like psychology or not, whether you believe it's a necessary evil or whether you believe it's the salvation of uh, uh, consciousness trying to become more mature or whether you think you're beyond the netherworlds of psychology because you're treading a spiritual path. Uh, whatever you think of this, you will have to acknowledge that our way of self-reflection is profoundly psychologized. We do think in psychological terms about our inner experience. For about a hundred years now, maybe 90 years. Mm. Your William James started quite early, 1870 and 1890, very powerfully. In fact, when Anagarika Dharmapala stumbled into one of his lectures in Harvard in 1904, um, James was quite enthusiastic, fished him out of the audience, had him come up and give a 15-minute give a, give a spiel on Buddhism. Yeah? Uh, Anagarika Dharmapala was a Sinhalese uh, with a lot of missionary zeal, had a very unconventional notion and was into Buddhist revivalism and traveled wildly, wi widely and came to the States. And uh, James invited him, Dharmapala said a few things and James applauded and said, this will be the psychology everybody is gonna talk about in 20 years. That was 1904. <laughs> <laughs> um, it hasn't happened. Yeah. There were a few pioneering souls, particularly a woman uh, named Caroline Rhys Davies, who uh, in the 
the first decade of, of, of the last century, wrote an ingenious book. She translated Abhidhamma, which he called Buddhist Psychological Ethics. And he sought uh, a discourse with some of the psychologists, but that discourse just didn't happen. You know? um, that was shortly uh, before behavioral psychology kicked in, and then the dark ages of psychology clouded over psychological development for the next 60 years. Yeah? And Mr. Skinner was teaching pigeons to play ping pong and things like that. Yeah? And nobody was interested in introspective techniques and practices anymore until you know, a few enlightened souls. Uh, and then things took a break until the 60s, basically. Sorry, footnote closed. <laughs> Diatribe against behavioralists ticked. So we reflect through literature, through popular uh, way of uh, re reflecting our own experience. When we speak of our inner world, we do so now in psychological terms. This wasn't always the case. If you read literature or letters from uh, before 1900, then things sound differently. We have powerful descriptions of inter interior processes, but not in psychological terms. Um, what happened is that differing psychological schools established notions of what a self is. And when Buddhists translate the Buddha's teaching on anattata, on, on the fact that we do not uh, have a central core, we do not have an ontological essence with metaphysical ambition, yeah? something that stays identical with itself through time, something that does not depend on attributes, something that does not uh, show any contingence on, on conditions that support it. In other words, something that is inalienably yours, that is immutably solid, and that is the essence and the core of your being. When such a self, <clears throat> does not have such ambitions, we can easily say that the Buddha had such a self. Now, the psychological schools do not necessarily agree with uh, what a self exactly is. It's conveniently vague. If you try to find actually an understanding of what psychologists mean when they speak of a self, then you find a variety of different views. For Freud, self was a largely unconscious process, full stop. Post-classical uh, analytic schools, it would be easy to find at least a half a dozen different models of self. There's something called self-psychology, which uh, has very interesting notions of self. There's two guys in there who are very central. One of them is Kohut, one of them is Kernberg, and they agree on many counts. They've written a lot about narcissism and borderline and such like. Uh, but when it actually comes down to it, they completely disagree with each other, on, although they're both part of something called self-psychology. If you speak with a Jungian about what a self is, then you get a very different take. This is now an archetypal category, which somehow has aspects in conscious and unconscious parts. Uh, if you speak with uh, any other psychological schools, you you will find there are different twists how this term is uh, charged, what the role, the function of such a self is. 
I would like to simplify this and just identify one key uh, uh, facet. I think there is a developmental task of becoming a self. And that developmental task, eased of uh, ambitions to be permanent or eased of ambitions to be uh, philosophically supported as a, an essence, as a core, unchanging core, if we leave that aside, then we find that um, many psychological models agree that there are a number of things we need to learn to become mature and coherent human beings. And that psychological task means you have to somehow connect a notion of your body with a notion of your needs, with a notion of your aspirations, your wishes, and the capacity to act in accordance with those values and wishes, so that some of that which you aspire and wish for has a great chance of happening. In other words, we need to learn a few things to become reasonably independent beings. We start off with a great degree of dependency, that is, inbuilt in, in our, our species, we could not survive when we get born without considerable help and maintenance for many, many years. And we need to acquire a number of skills, motor skills. We need to discern our senses. You know, babies take weeks to figure out how to use their senses. Why they may like things quite early or dislike things quite early to actually find out that that nice sound I love has something to do with me shaking the rattle. That takes a while to figure out that that nice sound and my motor movement have something in common. Yeah. This, this is, if you look at children, and if you're keen to read up on this, you can do that with Jean Piaget. Um, this takes an awful lot of time. Uh, and children do an amazing job at learning motor skills, learning um, very soon afterwards, learning relational skills, very soon after learning uh, cognitive skills, and begin to build a language, begin to begin uh, with, with this rapidity, absorb grammatical patterns that if you, uh, as soon as you've reached puberty, basically you can't, you can only lose against a kid. Little Chinese learn Chinese exactly as fast as little Germans, although Chinese is objectively more difficult and complicated. In fact, if you give children a chance to learn three languages in that time, you confuse them for a while and then they will know three languages. It's quite amazing. Yeah. The capacity of the human brain to actually absorb for at least a period up to puberty uh, structures, grammatical structures, and uh, develop linguistic skills is just amazing. It's It's... It's beyond, way beyond what is needed. It's, by the way, children's brain which decide about language, just as a sort of an aside. If a language does not make sense to a, children's, to a child's brain, that language has very, very few hopes for surviving. Things do not tend to survive if, you don't, if, they, don't, if they are not deemed effective for a child's brain because it's children's brains which basically decide what, what goes on in this world, what will continue, what has a future. You may still you know, have a few Sanskritists out there who are kind of 
putting in the effort to learn this, but it will never become a big language, Sanskrit. It never was, uh, and it will never be, because it doesn't make sense to a, a three-year-old brain. So, that developmental task has something to do with growing up, with learning skills, with acquiring competence, with connecting stuff I need, stuff I feel, stuff I wish, and stuff I can do. And that developmental task is in nowhere negated in the Buddhist teaching. I just want to be blunt about this. The Buddha did not teach psychosis when he spoke <laughs> of anatata. Yeah? This is not something we need to acquire, you know. Uh, as my friend John says, uh, if we do not understand, <laughs> if we do not have some degree of realization around the notion of not-self, then anything you can do is you train yourself into thinking yourself into a self-shaped whole, basically. Yeah? You take uh, what is on a perceptual level still uh, an identification with experience. In other words, it feels like self. And then you kind of sort of gymnastically in your head try to convince yourself that there isn't such a thing yeah? because you're a good Buddhist and Buddhists don't have a self. So although it still feels like self, you basically propound there is no self. And you keep having to punch that self out of the universe and you end up with a self-shaped hole in your universe. Yeah? Which I think is quite an image. It feels that way. And it is actually made to uh, an, a teaching that is to free you from identification. But instead of freeing you from identification, you just have a sort of a scissor cut kind of... Where there was a self, there is now a scissor cut hole in the shape of a self. And it still feels like a self. It still feels you and your problem and your story and your drama. We have another dimension. And this other dimension is... Um, we have self as a reflexive pronoun. When we speak of self, both the Pali texts and our language speaks of self uh, in terms of reflexive pronouns. You know, if you say, I shave myself, then in Pali you would say exactly the same. You would say, I shave my atang. Huh? I shave my atta. In English, you say, I shave myself. The reflexive pronoun has a self in there. You know? I'm shaving this, this one. You may stand in the front of the mirror and contemplate, you know, is this, am I shaving him? <laughs> is he shaving me? There's some interesting things you can get into on retreat. So. <laughs> so, we have already three different levels. Yeah, We have an ontological self that doesn't change. That would be the soul, which is what the Buddha denies. We have a self as a developmental project. Something that we need to do if we want to grow up, learn, develop our senses, develop our lives, become competent human beings. Then we have self as a reflexive pronoun, referring to this being rather than to other beings. And finally we have self in the sort of sense of 
haughtiness, conceit, and ego. And these different layers, these four different levels uh, of of usage, that's, I believe, how we we use self uh, in, 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 in our language today. You know, these different levels are kind of merged. You know? uh, and the Buddha's teaching on, say, impersonality does not apply to all of those four levels. First of all, the easiest one is the one with the reflexive pronoun. So that Pali term, atang, is quite often, occurs quite often in the suttas in a f- completely harmless way. You know, when the Buddha asks his monk to recite every day, uh, whether they, whether they live and practice in a way that they feel that their self doesn't make them reproaches. Yeah. Then the self is used in the sense of a conscience almost. Yeah. Do you have a bad conscience about any aspect of your behavior? So the, th- the term atang turns up in that phrase. Yeah? Does yourself make you any reproaches in regard to your own behavior? Um, so there's a great parallel in the way this is used in English or in German or in Pali. Um, I think it's quite unambiguous. The more tricky bit comes in when we are not referring to a soul anymore. That is also fairly straightforward because the Buddha pretty bluntly said, uh, you cannot find, he didn't say there isn't, there isn't such a soul. He, he only said, you cannot find such a soul in the five khandhas. And there is nothing outside of the five khandhas. Yeah? Um, so his statement actually was, a, a self cannot be found within the realm of your empirical experience. Obviously, you can believe all kinds of things outside the realm of uh, empirical experience. You can believe in your fantasies. You can believe in some uh, external deity. You can believe in animist forces. You can do all kinds of belief. But the Buddha was quite adamant that this is not particularly helpful. What was helpful is understanding your empirical experience as profoundly as possibly, with its workings, with its consciousness, with its perception, with its embodied nature. And that understanding is something that frees. He was quite clear about this. So, um, and, and everything else he had in the realm of ditti, he had in the realm of view and opinion and ideology. So his statement that the self cannot be found in the five khandhas is reiterated and it is not just to be believed, but we are to investigate those khandhas time and again to establish whether we do find enough ground, enough foundation for such a self. That is an interesting point. We are not just told this is the case. He keeps asking. So the power of this teaching is not that we finally believe his message, but that by internalizing this questioning process, we keep identifying in ourself the uh, falsity of a statement that says, there is a self and I am this self. This is mine, I am this, this is myself. That's the mother of all ditties, the mother of all views. I am this, this is mine, this is myself. 
So the whole teaching on khandhas basically drives this message. You know, take up your experience of the khandhas, identify those five realms in your experience, and whenever it feels like self, ask yourself, where does this self have a, has a footing? Where does it grow? Where does it stand on? Is what it stands on yours? Is what it stands on permanent? Is what it stands on uh, connected with, per with, with perfect happiness? If it is not, if yourself has its foundation in anything that is not perfect, not stable and not happy and not yours, how could such a self be perfect and happy and yours and stable? So far, so clear. Yeah. Um, then we have the, the third dimension, and this is self as an ego, self as conceit, self as haughtiness, self as, as in selfing, yeah? as we have begun to call this in selfing. In, this is actually good Pali. Uh, the Pali term for selfing is ahankara and mamankara, meaning I-making and my-making. I do some eye-making right now. You know, I'm feeling a bit ashamed about something and I do some eye-making with my feeling of shame. I identify with something, I feel I shouldn't have that or I shouldn't be seen with that at least and then I feel seen with that and then I do some eye-making with that feeling and then I become kind of blush, I become embarrassed, I... I feel I want to disappear into the ground. Yeah? So I do some eye-making and my-making with shame. And maybe later you think I have a shame problem or a guilt trip or, or I, I'm such a bad person. Yeah? Something like that. That would be the activity called eye-making and my-making. It's quite interesting. Unfortunately, it is not as known or not as often spoken of. But exactly that we uh, hit the, the, the nail on the head when we speak of selfing. We should think of self much more in terms of verb, a verb than a noun. The teaching of self is a lot more useful and powerful if we think of this as an activity. There is a psychological uh, branch that I think has a lot to say on this topic. It's called has the unwieldy name of object relation psychotherapy, and uh, they do some interesting things. They have a lot of concepts around relating to things in terms of a self-object, which is a convoluted way of saying ahankarama mankara. Yeah, I'm selfing. I'm selfing a bit with this particular thing. Yeah? Anything can be re related to in terms of a self-object. In other words, I can re establish a relationship with this thing and then I identify with either the thing itself, that'd be easy. Mostly we do more complicated things. We start feeling, we start to distinguish ourselves from the thing we relate to. You know, we're feeling slightly better or we're feeling slightly slower or we're feeling a lot lower or a lot better or we're feeling exactly equal. Yeah, But still we're creating a self-construct. So anything you relate to in terms of self, you will end up with a reinforcement of your self-construct. Again, this is psychological language, but I think quite useful psychological language because it admits actually that we construe an image of self. Psychologists make distinctions. There's very 
simple notions of just feeling a body self, feeling the coherence of a body self. And then we have a kind of a representational self. In other words, I have a self-image. And anything flattering to that self-image gives me good feelings, and anything uh, unflattering to that self-image gives me bad feelings. So if you do not validate my self-perception, you know, if I'm smart and you tell me actually you're not, yeah, then m my degree of identification with my smart self will be painful for me. In other words, that is the hallmark of any such self-construct. It is remarkably painful. Yeah. It's one of the easiest ways I can get into pain, is by having a complicated, preferably unrealistic self-construct, which then gets continually brutalized and, and battered by the world, basically. Uh, Jack Engler has, in the, I think in the early 90s already, said that the Buddhist path of meditation, and the Buddhist path, is basically something like um, a continual mourning for the loss of an illusionary self. Yeah. So we're in a continual state of grieving that something we have invested in is basically not there. And that, again, is the, the most poignant thing. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with a notion of meanness, or there's nothing wrong with a notion of connecting my strength and my wishes and my needs and my uh, capacity to act. But there is something wrong when I believe into in the stability of that construct. The problem with that is that stability is completely fictional. Where does the self go when I sleep? Yeah. Where does the self go when, I'm, when the mind is still? Such a self needs continual discursive activity. It needs continual ways to distinguish itself. Yeah. The... Uh, French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu has some very interesting things to say, not in, the not in the defense of Buddhism, but he speaks of something called the gain of distinction. And one way we keep selfing a lot is we, we distinguish ours from others. We go through the world comparing, judging, uh, sometimes criticizing, sometimes envying. Yeah? but basically creating distinctions. And out of these distinctions, we create enough friction to generate a self. A leaky self, admittedly, a highly perishable self, a self very prone to suffering, to disintegration, and that is already its main problem. Because it doesn't exist, and because it's completely fictional, it takes an immense amount of work to, in upkeep. Yeah? You basically have to fix something that's not there. You have to maintain a fiction, which is hard work. You know? Sometimes I say it's a kind of it's a leaky boat. Yeah? We have a little self, or in fact we have many selves, because we're not as Brahminical as the contemporaries of the Buddha. We don't actually necessarily believe in a solid soul. That is not our major problem. Our problem is not a metaphysical soul for most people I know and meet. That's not their problem, that they believe in such a thing with complete conviction. A good old Catholic soul or a Jewish soul is a bit more wobbly, I'm told, by people who know about Jewish souls. They say that even souls don't quite seem to be as permanent as Catholic souls. But I'm not sure I would be surprised if there is complete agreement in this. 
But on the whole, the firm belief in the solidity of our soul is not really an issue. What, what seems to be an issue is that we keep identifying with aspects of our experience and create these aspects into a meanness, which we know it's not going to last long, but it maybe tides me over for the next half hour. Yeah? And then I have to get, get another, I have to shore up another little self, another little self object, another little act of identification to tide me over the next half hour. So I kind of paddle through my day, half hour wise, identifying with this leaky boat of self. And I have to bail and bail and bail because the thing basically goes down. It can't maintain itself. It's not real. It has no foundation in empirical experience. It's a construct of the mind. And as soon as this mind is preoccupied with something, it goes selfless. If it sleeps for 20 minutes, has a kip, it goes subtly selfless. If somebody comes up and says, no, you're not who you think you are, it goes selfless or it goes into agony. Sometimes we say, oh, thank God. I'm very glad for you to tell me that I'm not who I thought I were. Uh, or sometimes we're going into narcissistic defenses and say, you know, you're mad, you're evil, you, you, you dare not confirming me in this, you dare having different perceptions of me, you know, you will be punished. I, I unleash my rage. Yeah? If you've ever pricked a narcissist in this, then you'll know what I talk of. This uh, profound, uh, visceral defense kicking in and if you dare to not uphold his or her reality particularly the self-construct then you will you know you will feel this person's rage why would i ha want to have a self in the first place well there are kicks there are perks there you know a self um, has some advantages let's let's admit this yeah, uh, the human psyche is not stupid. It does things because it works, at least to some degree. There is an economy in the human psyche. So if you find yourself doing repeatedly things, or if you find your mind keeps doing particular things you don't understand, it probably means you haven't understood what the payback is of this. You may focus uniquely on the disadvantages without acknowledging the payback and unless you're understanding the payback however much you lament the disadvantages you will not be able to move on because you will only be able to move on if the whole the whole deal is above board if only the disadvantages are above board but what you actually rake in through that particular pattern is not acknowledged that pattern will likely continue so that's why the contemplation of the asada, of the gratification, uh, I spoke a bit two weeks ago or so, is so crucial. Understanding not just the danger, the disadvantage, but understanding the gratification we get. Particularly of those things we so happily complain about, we blame ourselves for, we lament. So, why would I want to have a self? A self creates some degree of safety in a world that I know all too well to be transient, unpredictable, sudden, not mine, and treacherous insofar as the promises are often not kept. And I'm not speaking of the promises of people, 
but I'm speaking of the promises of things. Things do not reliably make me happy, even the same things. Even if they made me happy yesterday, I have no guarantee that they will make me happy today or tomorrow. So we know that fairly early on in a sort of speechless, immediate way. And one of the ways to cope with uncertainty, this is what transience essentially does to us, it makes our lives profoundly uncertain. It makes us profoundly prone to unpredictability, to a sense of loss of control and chaos. And that's hard to bear for all of us. Yeah? So the, the psyche does a little number and it's, it pretends that there are things that are more stable than in fact they are. Although this is completely untrue and needs a lot of upkeep, it actually works by making things psychologically safe enough for us to, do, to go about learning things, to go about relating to people we don't know, to go about finding out for th what we need and finding out about ourselves by relating to others. All this is absolutely essential for growing up. It's absolutely essential for the developmental task of becoming a full human being. So, having such a however fake notion of self that lasts for about half an hour or 20 minutes or half a day if you're lucky, is creating just about enough safety for us to get on with business, to identify learning tasks, developmental tasks, to grow up. Unfortunately, this is a, an elaborate fiction and as soon as we have grown up we, or while we grow up we, we find it rather painful that uh, both the upkeep of that fiction gets increasingly more difficult and, and uh, energy consuming at the same time uh, that self e easily loses its course yeah? that self can turn against us what was a necessary little fiction about me feeling good about myself suddenly now turns into a pattern where I keep feeling bad about myself or I where I keep feeling not just threatened for how I can grow up in an unsafe world, but where I need to actually be fearful for the existence of this self, because there are so many other selves out there that disagree with mine, or that compete with mine, or that, that are just bigger and mine disappears when we stand beside each other. Huh? This particular teaching... Uh, when we look at the Buddhist psychology, is strictly spoken not actually addressed with the teaching of Anatata. Yeah? So sometimes we make a confusion. We try to refer to the dynamic self we, we struggle with and we identify with and its construct and its uh, shenanigans. The teaching in Buddhist psychology that refers to this pattern is actually not in the anatta department it's more in the mana department it's more in the department referring to conceit forms of conceit uh, theoretically there's just three superiority inferiority and equal equalness um, as forms of conceit and uh, but practically there's many more um, in fact, Theravada or Pali Buddhism has a, a very um, particular kind of uh, conceit which is about self-dejection. Yeah. 
It's a conceit that uh, we identify with a particular low version of ourselves. In other words, it's something that feels particularly bad and we particularly passionately identify with this. Yeah. Kind of like going around and saying, I'm a lot worse than you. Yeah. I'm a lot more inferior than you. I'm a lot more neurotic and mean and greedy and averse than you. And um, psychologically, this is quite interesting because it would make sense to attach with grasping and identification to things that give us good feeling. That makes somehow sense, isn't it? If it's nice, it feels good. I would like to keep it. I like to make it mine. I like to identify with it. Yeah. Nice thought. My thought. Nice guy. Nice thought is gone. Nice guy stays behind. Yeah. That's identification. Problem comes nasty thought. Yeah. My thought. Nasty guy. Nasty thought is forgone and forgotten. Uh, nasty guy stays behind. Let alone the complications when other people uh, have feelings. But which which of my thoughts are the nice ones and which are the nasty ones? You know, we may not completely agree uh, on this uh, on these scales. Um, the the challenge is how can I get things to be safe enough that I can experiment and grow up. Yeah, that's the developmental challenge. How can I feel safe enough in, a in an unpredictable, changeable uh, world that most of the stuff that makes me happy is actually outside of my control? Ultimately, it's very hard to, to control love and health and you know the availability of people who are caring towards me or... It's very difficult to control that. Even if you're very rich and successful, you, you know, it only takes a little travel or a change in government or uh, a, a persistent skin rash, and you know, suddenly you find yourself in a very, very different ball game. So we all know this: that most of the things that determine our actual happiness are largely outside of our immediate power. And uh, having a self that we can identify with somehow helps us navigate this. It also uh, puts us in great peril because this self heightens our likelihood of experience suffering, frustration, conflict dramatically. You know, this is our story here, Western culture. This is our you know, this is where we have invested in the, the autonomous subject that is on our shrines. That's what the whole, uh, you know, Occidental philosophy has been doing since, since Job, basically. Yeah, since Job said no to God, <laughs> says no, I have not sinned. Although you blame me and give me hard times, I have not sinned. You know, since then, that's the first documented evidence of somebody holding a conflict conflict in literature uh, I know of maybe there's other things but this is something which comes to mind is one of the oldest books of the Hebrew Bible by the way uh, a lot older than anything in Buddhism just to be clear um, in terms of actually as a written text as a document of literature if you want and since then the autonomous subject you know 
understanding itself, recognizing itself, actualizing itself, uh, this determining itself. This is a huge project in, in Occidental thinking, in Occidental life. That's what we are good at as societies. But now we're so damn individual that we can't even live together with each other. You know, that we have great challenge, that we, we have more and more people who basically can live with less and less people. We, we get so individual that we can barely hack it with each other, that we feel permanently threatened. You know? And, you know, that makes our meditation centers have single rooms and, you know, I amongst, uh, amongst uh, all people also like my single room. I do not deny this is also my condition. This is not the same. I remember being baffled when I was a monk in Amaravati with the retreat center. And the retreat center had dorms and had single rooms. And it was particularly pronounced when there was women's retreats because the Asian women, they would all flock into the dorm. Yeah? The last thing they wanted to be was on their own. Thai women particularly. And the Western women, they would disappear into the individual rooms. The last thing they wanted to be in a shared dorm. Yeah? So this is conditioned stuff. It's not inbuilt. It has nothing to do with humanity. It has to do with social conditioning. The teaching on mana and the teaching on upadana are the most uh, explicit ways the Buddha suggests we address one branch of what we call self, namely the self that is the result of selfing, of grasping, of identification. So the stratification is this, the coarsest form of such selfing is called atta vada upadana, the grasping at an explicit theory or ideology of individuality. Now, this grasping doesn't mean, or the Buddhist critique of that doesn't mean that there is no individuality, that you are all the same, that we are all the same. We are most obviously not the same. Um, I wish we were a little more same, to be honest. It would make our lives easier in, in many ways. You know, if we were like ants, who, whenever they would meet each other, I hope we don't have any entomologists in here, um, they meet each other, they share a little bit of their stomach content with the guy who comes across. So, so your interlocutor actually gets a piece of your stomach content. And because you come from the, the ant hill, uh, he actually gets a metabolic message of what's going on back home. Yeah? And that's what ants do. When you ever see two ant lines kind of crossing each other, stopping, quickly do something, give the other one. So everybody, you know, the one coming in tells, look what I found in the forest or what 500 guys down the line have found. For, for, and I'm just carrying the message. Here is a piece of my stomach. Yeah? And the other guy says, look, this is what's lacking back, back home. Yeah, I'm very glad you're, you're, you're finding this. Very good idea. Let's go there. Yeah? So if we did that while you kind of walk down the corridor, yeah? <laughs> imagine you gently stopped and you would get your little feelers out, you would regurgitate some of your stomach content, you would feed your interlocutor coming the other way, and you would actually have a metabolic connection 
not just about what's going on with you, but what's going on back at the hill or out, you know, where the the vanguard is uh, foraging uh, in in the forest. But we're not like that. You know, we rely on treacherous concepts which we uh, try to define and put out to people and exchange and hope that we are understood on the same terms as we have made sense of these terms. It's a wonder that we do actually understand each other to, the, to such a remarkable degree, considering what can go wrong. Yeah. It would be a lot safer to just exchange stomach content. And so on. How do I feel like a self? There's a variety of ways. Knowing all this, what I just told you, and knowing that the teaching of conceit, of grasping, are the tools Buddhist teaching offers to address this feeling of self. Uh, Let me furnish you the other parts. The next one down from Atavada Upadana is um, Sakaya Ditti, personality view, which is fairly... Um, it is less ideologically buttressed. It is more, uh, this is more just how it feels. You know? This is me. The sort of diffuse sense of meanness that we have without having big theories of self or di- big theories of ego or without having a big theory of a soul or so. We still feel, well, this is me. You know, If I hit the thumb, this is my thumb. This is my pain. This is my stupidity that led to that. Um, the next one down is called mana. Uh, the conceit of a self. The conceit of meanness. That's the most subtle one. So, Atavada takes a lot of intellectual support to uphold this. Sakaya Ditti happens quasi-automatically through lack of clarity, lack of scrutiny, lack of attention to detail. So the Sakaya Ditti solidifies itself generally to forms of superficial attention. Asmimana is a lot more subtle. It falls away very, very late in the, in the ladder of, of spiritual freedom. It, uh, it's the last of the fetters to go with... Uh, with uh, a little bit of ignorance. So even a Sakadagami, even a once-returner, uh, uh, no, once-returner definitely has Asmimana. Uh, the Anagami still has has a little bit of Asmimana, of the conceit of I am. Yeah. Plus, plus ignorance. Yeah. That's what separates the uh, last stage of freedom from complete freedom, from Arahatapala. So this is a subtle notion. Yeah. That subtle notion doesn't mean you believe that you're to be found, yourself is to be found in the khandas, but it means um, there's still a flavor of meanness in there. You know? There's still a flavor of conceit in there somewhere. So why would I want to have a self? Well, that self, <clears throat> there's a couple of ways I can experience myself as. That self feels as if it's the occupant of the body. You know? I'm kind of you know the little <clears throat> the little mannequin in here which operates in the the, the Akinjino robot yeah that's the kind of the, the headquarters <clears throat> the guy who sits up here and has the levers 
So in many ways, I feel as the... Uh, yeah, I think occupant is probably a good word for, for how this relationship to body uh, comes together. Then I definitely feel I am the beneficiary and the victim of Vedana, of Sukha Vedana, I feel a beneficiary. I'm at the receiving end of... I get the choose when it's sweet, when it's pleasurable, and I am the victim when it's unpleasant, when it's displeasurable. You know, it feels like I am at the receiving end of Vedana in some way. Quite unquestionably. I, I have a sense I'm the author, the director of... of um, of basically of my expression, yeah. I'm the sort of creative director of the Akinjino Gesamtkunstwerk, yeah. Sort of, uh, I I kind of I do him, yeah. I I have the saying what he says and where he goes and how he dresses and what statements he makes and this kind of thing. So there's a sense of agency in there. Um, that sense of agency is more pronounced on another level where I think I am doing the thinking. I am the one who does the will bit. Yeah. I'm not just expressing this as an artist. I'm, I'm actually the doer. I call the shots. I am the mover here. Yeah. This is the bit which says that's what you're going to do uh, and that's what you're not going to do. So in a way, I feel that I'm sort of a the agent force in my life, basically. I, uh, I do the deciding, I do the action, and I also I, I, I have the responsibility. Yeah? So I'm being both held responsible and I can take credit if things go well. Yeah. Um, another point is, I sense deep down here, somehow there is an essence, there is a core. Uh, I experience myself as a continuity, I point to a to a photograph, and on that photograph is a picture of me when I am, you know, fifteen months old, and I'm in the big pram, and this is Aunt Emmy pushing me around. And I say, "This is me, fifty-five years ago," you know, something like that, which is a complete joke. Nothing is identical. Yeah, you know? the guy didn't even have his milk tooth then, and I don't have mine anymore. Yeah. You know? I've moved on from those. Um, every single cell in my body has changed since then. Aunt Emmy is, you know, has gone to the yellow sources in the meantime. And uh, the pram is long, uh, you know, jettisoned. Uh, the place where we were is now a new store. And, you know, none of my thoughts I have recall. None of my emotions I have recall. None of my body senses I have recall. And yet I claim identity with this being. Yeah? Which is completely normal. Everybody, we wouldn't bat an eyelid if people do that and say, that's me here. And yet, it's, if you look at it, it's completely nonsensical. Yeah? It's true that this being has something in common with me. There's a connection there. There's a continuity. But this being that I am now is formed by what has happened in between much more than by what this young one's core essence was. We all know this. So these are ways I, despite all Buddhist teaching, I still, it feels like self. Yeah? 
you feel you get Vedana, you feel you doing the deciding, you feel you doing the expression, you feel you're the occupant of the body, you feel you're the driving force in your life. And I think this is perfectly all right. As long as you don't make a solid self out of this and actually begin to corroborate this or crystallize this or believe this is always going to be that way, then that's perfectly healthy. And I believe the Buddha, in psychological terms, had a fairly robust, reliable and resilient self. You know, it was a pretty hard task what he did. I admire his uh, social organizational skills as much as I admire his awakening. I can't quite fathom his awakening. I can a little more fathom his social organizational skills because it wasn't easy. The empires were crumbling. Uh, monks and nuns were difficult people, many of them. Some of them beautifully brilliant and about them we have many testimonies. But unfortunately we have also other testimonies about people who were a little less beautiful and less brilliant and quite obstreperous. Uh, if you read the Orden, the monastic discipline books, which are quite voluminous, uh, you get a fair idea that not everybody was immediately enlightened and well-behaved and uh, quick in uptake of his teaching. So, I can only think that somebody who did what he did showed his, his amount of skill and showed his energy, showed his diplomacy, showed his uh, warmth, his humor, uh, his ingeniousness is somebody with a very dynamic, a very healthy, a very expressive, a very mobile kind of mature self. Can't think of this in any other way. Now such a self will not have lasted, it will not have been eternal, it will not have been ontological, but in terms of our ways of referring to health, to healthy functioning, I think we have to admit he and his closest disciples seemed pretty healthy guys and you know, galls. You know. They seemed to be pretty together in psychological terms. So they weren't mummies, they weren't kind of meditative decord mummies. They were together, they could relate, they could meet, they could be handling criticism, they were sensitive, they were caring, they were compassionate, they were, they were not sort of zero kanda arahats, yeah? running on zero cylinders, yeah? no feelings, no will, no perceptions, just sheer awakening. That's not how they come across. Sariputta was still skipping over puddles, completely enlightened, even though he, yeah, he was a great uh, analytic uh, prodigy, and that didn't stop him from having some, um, some fun skipping over puddles, by the sounds of it. We are told because he was in a previous birth a monkey, we do not know. Maybe he just enjoyed skipping over puddles. Yeah. We do not know. So let's debunk the notion that we have to get rid of a self. As long as you're trying to get rid of a self, you get in trouble. You have to understand how a self functions. That is a lot more useful. You have to understand that no self-functioning can get you out of impermanence, can get you out of suffering, and can get you out of the impersonal process nature of our experience. Yeah. 
So we need to understand a self. We need to look into the mechanics of such a self. We need to look what the self tries to achieve to find out that it doesn't actually succeed. And then you do not actually need to destroy yourself or rid yourself of the self or you know, beat it out of you. All it takes is to understand that it doesn't hold up to scrutiny. It's like switching on the light. You don't have to fight off every particle of darkness. You know, If the light of clear understanding shines on the fiction of a self, then you do not actually need to destroy it or hack away at it. All you need to understand is that it is not real, that it is created, that it is not your enemy. It's a process that had a developmental necessity, but ultimately it cannot save you from the things we need to, we all need to reconcile with, transience, personality, and that insatisfactory is laced into all aspects of our experience. It's the self is to be transformed, not destroyed. A self that we need destroying is still a very sort of self-centered activity. So there's one self hacking away at another, which is not really a good source for happiness. It's willful, it's painful, and it doesn't work. So the self, think of the self, this is my current understanding, the self is basically a recoil. It's the contraction of a mind that tries to avoid pain. Yeah? Where we meet pain or where we apprehend pain, there's a kind of recoil in our psyche. And that recoil starts to be the node around which we begin to assemble a self-construct. Yeah. Myself is the most promising strategy against the pain I have either experienced or, there are, or I feel I am about to experience in my immediate environment. And then I decide on some kind of self-strategy, diminishing my needs so that I can't be hurt by being deprived of things I need, or making a lot of noise so that everybody takes care of me, or by being very, very nice so that they love me and then I can get what I want, or by being very bad, so because they don't love me, I can still have power and I can at least mess things up for them. Yeah? You know, we all have diff or I get so sick that they will just be afraid I will die and then they look after me better or, or they let me in peace or something like that. We have very little strategies and this is what our self-construct is like. And, it's, and we don't need to kill this. We don't need to hack away at this, but we need to understand how it has come about, that it is ultimately futile to try to maintain that construct, that it takes a lot more energy to defend such a self than to wake up to the reality that we are dynamic, that we are capable of learning, that we are process creature rather than uh, static ontological individuals, and that the dynamic nature of the mind is that which makes it possible to grow, to learn, and ultimately to become free. Good. Let me stop here. Um, ah, a little afterthought. There's different dimensions. No, let me do this tomorrow. You had enough.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.